This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Okay, hi everybody. Let's get started. Um, my name is Omri Ben-Shachar. I'm the a professor here. I teach contract law to the first years in a variety of courses on consumer protection and commercial law. Uh, in addition, and, and today I'm going to talk to you something that is not related to contract law. Those of you who took or are taking my contract law class might hear something different. It is a, a part of my interest in examining the uh, generic forms of pro protective laws. Um, one of the generic forms that I've studied in the past are disclosure laws. I'm not going to talk about those today either, uh, but we'll talk about a, a new a type of a protection that I think I can identify throughout all of law, which I call excess justice laws. And I will explain what they are, what they're trying to do, and why I think they are running into uh, this uh, danger zone of leading to more unintended, undesired consequences than, uh, than good ones. Um, and okay, so with that, Let's understand what excess justice is. What are we talking about? And I'm going to give some a definition and some examples, and we'll kind of work throughout in the next 20, 25 minutes while I speak. But you can also later on think of many other examples that would fit into this family of laws. Uh, these are rules, mandatory rules, that secure e what I call equal access or open access to primary goods and to primary opportunities. You can think of them as equal opportunities, opportunity laws. They also are type of excess justice laws. They are different from other mandatory laws in the sense that they don't mandate an outcome. They don't actually allocate the goods. They just give open access to everyone who wants to get a chance to enjoy these goods. And they are always justified by an the ideal is egalitarian ideal, or a pro, you can call it a progressive redistrib redistributive goal. But that's just fancy language for the idea that try to help lower-income people who might otherwise, in a world in which the government does not secure their opportunity, they might be bumped out, crowded out uh, by market forces. If things are allocated without government intervention based on prices, Weak, lower-income people will uh, be worse off than the more affluent. Uh, I'll give you really quickly many, many examples. We'll focus more on a few. But you can think of mandated universal access to information. These are all of disclosure laws, say that people should always, mandatory disclosure laws require equal access to information. There is, a, in IP, in intellectual property, there is a very powerful um, social movement that's called access to knowledge that argues that restrictive property rights like copyrights and patents that do not allow many people, especially low-income people, uh, the access to innovations and technologies and drugs and content uh, and that, they sh that, that they should get. In banking law, and say, there is a debate over the community, for example, about over the Community Reinvestment Act. This is a statute that tries to provide access to banking to the poor. And they, it restricts the 
permits and licenses to big banks and requires them in order to qualify for their general banking to also do some banking for the poor. Insurance and medicine, that may be a very powerful example. A lot of the Affordable Care Act is about providing access to insurance, to health care and health insurance to people in medicine in general in other countries where public health is not as advanced, say, as in the Western world. There are issues, there are laws that require access to medicine. Again, not counting on the markets to provide these. You can think of product safety as an access issue. Products liability guarantees to everyone minimum level of compensation and therefore safety. We can also talk about net neutrality, access to internet, not slowed or, you know, slowed down by price, by the willingness, or, or not provided based on willingness to pay, but based on an equal treatment of all. In Europe, there is a group, uh, there is a very powerful um, social movement that's called Access justice, but there they have a technical meaning. They mean consumer protections in markets for goods and services. That people would have the right to withdraw, would have the right to compensation. All sorts of rights for consumers that are not mandated in the U.S. are, are mandated in Europe under the deal of access justice. You can think of access to parks. That's a very long-standing tradition in many localities that parks are open to everyone and do not charge user fees. But this is going beyond these basic ideas. Many states have what is called community preservation acts that allow states to convert private land into public land so that everyone can use it and secure funds for this purpose of equal access. And finally, the topic that got me interested in this is what is known as access to justice. Not access justice, but access to justice. Access to courts, which is being restricted now regularly by mandatory arbitration clauses. And the access to justice movement fights for equal openness for everyone to litigation and to public courts. These are, this is what we're talking about. And the list can be filmed, the list can go on for many pages. What I'm interested in is not whether this is good or bad for business, but I'm looking only at consumers. And I'm asking, looking only at people, asking who are the big winners from excess justice and who, if there are, are losers. And I think that it's important to look at it as a problem of cross-subsidy, problem, in, an issue in a situation in which some people subsidize others. The intended effect, intended effect of the uh, excess justice laws is to create a cross-subsidy which is regarded as progressive, namely the public, the government's budget, which is funded by taxpayers' money, which is collected from more affluent people, will subsidize programs that are largely enjoyed by poor people who then will not have to pay for them. So this will be a, a, a cross-subsidy in favor of the weak, low-income people. Think of Medicaid as access to medicine that satisfies this ideal. It's maybe not the best health plan, but it is a health plan that provides some floor, some minimum access to medicine funded not by the recipients who are the poorest members of society, but by others. 
the unintended effect that I'm talking about, we'll talk about, is the, is the opposite, that these programs actually benefit elites. And here I mean more affluent, more sophisticated. Overall, those who are less in need would be the ones who will get most of the value from the program. That is not what we wanted. And if we knew that a program accomplishes this unintended effect, we might want to scratch it or reform it or rethink it. So the question is, do many of the access policies or all of these access policies that I've uh, listed before achieve the intended or the unintended effect? And in some of these areas, I'm doing some of my own empirical research to try to see if I can identify some effect. But largely, since this is a, you know, an ocean of issues, I'm relying on what I can uh, pick here and there and see what has been studied already. So start with a very you know, simple, almost trivial, and maybe the least interesting in, uh, example, the example of open space, public parks, this community preservation act that we have in many states. I'm saying that it's least important because the stakes here are not enormous. These are not major national programs in billions of dollars. These are tens, if not hundreds of millions, at most hundreds of millions of dollars in states that have enacted them. The idea here of these states, of these, of these statutes, is that the state will provide funding, matching funds, or subsidize the locality, the municipality's program to convert private land into public use, to create green belts, to create public parks, to create affordable housing. These are expensive things. You need to buy land from landowners, from farmers in the, uh, uh, around, uh, surrounding the, the town, and in order to get these funds, the state will match, will provide some subsidy to encourage this from, for happening. The thing is that they take, for example, the Massachusetts Community Preservation Act. Cities can join this, but they have to fund some of it themselves. And under the statute, the Massachusetts statute, they have to impose their own property tax surcharge on all properties, raise that money, and then the state will double it or triple it or provide some kind of matching fund. The state will match, will provide the matching fund from a special budgetary source, which is a fees imposed on deeds. Deeds are these transactions of real estate that are registered in the state registry. Every time someone comes to register a land transaction, they will have to, or, 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 or sale of a car, the, they will have to pay a fee that is earmarked for the, to, to support this uh, open space program. It turns out that, maybe not surprisingly, but definitely what, not what was intended, that affluent towns are the big winners. Why? Anybody can think why the, why, what is the reason that only rich cities, towns in Massachusetts turn, end up using this opportunity to get state matching funds. Well, the reason is that poor places are not willing to impose the 3% tax. And so the uh, Newtons and uh, uh, Martha Vineyard, or so, I'm not sure, I'm not saying, the last, I know about Newton, I'm not sure about the other, uh, uh, about these islands, but uh, uh, are the big winners. In the places that have the highest per capita income, we, excuse me, highest income and wealth, we see that they gain, on average, $127 from this program. 
whereas places that are the poorest gain from the program, the benefit that they get is much smaller, if not, if not zero. And then there is the who pays side. It turns out that the poor cities pay more than the wealthy cities because it is these urban places like Worcester where there are a lot of deeds, you know, sell, even when you sell a used car, you pay a tax for this. So Worcester pays but does not enjoy the benefit, whereas Newton sprawl, doesn't have that many residents, doesn't pay that much but enjoys a big benefit. So that's not a progressive program. Okay. Another example, a few other quick, quicker examples. Mandated benefits. This is, these are actually very big issues, but we'll start from, yeah, we'll start from the uh, Affordable Care Act that created a mandate for mental health parity. Mental health treatment should be treated, should be uh, um, provided the same coverage as physical health. There's a study that showed that is being done at Duke and shows that whites and affluent people take advantage four times more than minorities, take advantage of the mental health treatment four times more than minorities. If this is true and if this is not just a, if this, you know, not something that will change over time, that means that the people who, who gets the advantage from this benefit more affluent people. Another example comes from exam accommodations. So um, federal law requires that students with disabilities, for example, high school students with disabilities, will be given more exam time. Um, you have to be diagnosed with a disability in order to get that. Well, it turns out that, and this is census data, for federal census, but I'm applying it to Illinois, 1% of students in Illinois get the accommodation, but 5% of students in Chicago's wealthiest suburbs get this accommodation. And in the poor areas, the rate is 5% lower than the natural, national average. So there, this is a great discrepancy. Districts with the highest rate of exam accommodations are mostly white. Districts with the lowest rate are mostly poor non-white. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting we want you to conclude that exam accommodations are bad because, after all, they do try to level the playing field between kids with disabilities and kids without. But it turns out that uh, that only helps kids with wealthy kids with disabilities, to put it bluntly. Poor kids with disabilities don't enjoy this program. So if we brought them to the legislature, stories about a poor kid or a lower, middle, lower income family with kids with a learning disability and thought and said, let's have a program that helps them, it turns out that they are not being helped. Rich kids get help, get most of the help far and away. Another example, uh, affordable insurance. Property insurance is exceedingly expensive in area, low-lying coastal areas. So much so that it is no longer sold by insurance companies, but rather subsidized and sold by the government. Flood insurance is sold by the, and subsidized and sold by the federal government through what is known as the National Flood Insurance Plan that is managed by FEMA. Windstorm insurance is sold uh, in, in storm-stricken states by the state. For example, by the state of Florida, in two, two homes in Florida. 
So the government provides enormous subsidies to people living along coastal areas to be able to afford insurance. It could be the difference between paying $500 a year and $5,000 a year for insurance if it were truly based on the risk, as insurance companies would charge them. Why are the government, in debating over these subsidies, representatives invoke the progressive ideal, right? Moral duty to the poorest people and working people and lower middle income people. Anything but the elite. In a recent, in a recent reform of the subsidy law, the, another senator said, doing everything, these are subsidies for people who are doing everything they can to put food on the table. We won't deny them food on the table. Well, this is kind of surprising because you would have thought that people that live close to the water are more affluent, all else equal. Granted, there are people in some parishes in Louisiana that lie close to the Mississippi, get flooded, very poor, kind of have lived there for a long time, and we want to support them. But by and large, if you drive in any co community that has been developed in the last 50 years and look at the places that are close to the water, there is an enormous premium in price, double and triple sometimes the price, relative to a few blocks away. So it's the rich that are at the forefront that, you know, get the storm surge from hurricanes and, and severe weather. In fact, I did this map based on Florida information about this is the, a map of Florida, but it's divided to, it's an insurance map. The greener the shade is the place, the larger the subsidy that is given in this region. Not surprising, you see the very dark green are along the coast. That's where the state subsidizes a lot. And, uh, you know, you see the, the red dots are areas that are the filthy rich. And the blue dots are poor, the poorest areas. And the poor dots are play, lying in mostly inland where they get no subsidy and the rich get uh, the nice dark green money. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the um, quantitative research that I did I shows that a 1% increase in wealth in Florida is associated with more than 1% increase in the subsidy that you get. So people who are twice as wealthy get twice as much money from the state in this program. This was, by the way, two years ago, the government, the federal government after Superstorm Sandy tried to reform this because it seemed to be not because of the redistributive effect that we had just talked about. Nobody thinks about that. But because of the big cost to the government. The FEMA, the program, had a $24 billion uh, deficit. And so a, a law called the Biggert Waters Flood Insurance Reform Act was passed to scale down the subsidies, not to not apply them to second homes, not apply them to homes that are more wealthy, to, to, to reduce the subsidies every time the house is sold, and just generally, year to year, reduce gradually the subsidies. The, the, it was passed in 2012 and was about to kick in last spring, in spring of 2014, a few days before it was to, kick, to come into action, to, come into, uh, to become a law. Insurance companies were, and the state insurers were already sending 
the new premiums to people, and everybody was calling their Congress, you know, rep the representatives, and sure enough, the Home Flood Insurance Affordability Act of 2014 was passed to undo completely, almost completely, in any meaningful effect, the, the Bigert Waters Act, and even Representative Maxine Waters voted for it to revoke her own law. Representative Bigert was no longer in Congress. Um, but <clears throat> it is the, the subsidy, the ideal of this subsidy, helping people afford, and you can read, and I had a research assistant read the congressional record for me. Everyone, every congressperson gets on a podium and talks about those statements that we saw. Affordability, lower income, people put food on the table. Both these and ours. It is the, but suppose, but uh, you know, as as you see, it is a myth. This is not to make anything affordable. It is a great gift to the affluent homeowners in coastal areas. There are many more examples. I'm not going to show you to go into detail. Access to courts is one of them. We can talk about them in the Q&A. Do mandatory arbitration clauses that restrict access to court hurt the poor consumers or the elites? Who are the people that would otherwise go to court? We know that usually anything, anybody, blue-collar, poor consumers, almost never can get an attorney to sue. It is mostly white-collar claims that arrive in court. So maybe that's not such a terrible thing that courts are no, no longer accessible to the elites and firms are not subject to liability that they, can, they will later price in their products on everyone. But that's not that simple because maybe it is the elites that file suits, but they want to file class actions which will benefit everyone, or do they? Do poor people get the benefit of class actions? We know that they don't, nobody redeems the compensation, the 77 cents you can get, you know, when you get a coupon or something after class action, but they do enjoy the deterrence of class action, unless we think that class actions deter the wrong companies, not those that serve the poor people, and there is a lot of evidence that class actions are not filed against the worst companies that do, that hurt poor people in the subprime markets, but rather against prime companies that have strong trademarks and deep pockets that serve more affluent people. Access to internet, I'm not gonna bring you any data, but just to suggest that this is the, a very important question to ask when we discuss net neutrality. If prices are going to be the same, if, if Comcast cannot charge Netflix more to use the high-speed internet channels, then users of Netflix don't have to pay Netflix higher fees, but everybody that uses Comcast, Netflix users and non-Netflix users, will have to pay more to Comcast. So who are the winners and who are the losers? It is not clear to me that this is a progressive policy. In fact, I think from the, some of the rough data that I've seen, this is again a benefit to more affluent, more sophisticated internet users. Lastly, access to information. This is, these are disclosure laws. And there is enormous amount of evidence. I've collected it in my book on disclosure laws that suggests that these are laws that help more sophisticated people make better decisions, sometimes at the expense of less sophisticated people. I don't have time to give you all the list of why this access is deployed selectively. Why don't people walk in freely into those things that are offered to them? 
Why do some people use it more and some less? Why do we have this excess, uh, differentiated excess? And there are many reasons for, for it and that are kind of um, more subtle sometimes or sometimes pretty obvious that you don't know that there is the right to access. You don't have the car to drive to the free national park. Uh, you can't afford some of the other things that are needed to fully enjoy the free access. If there are free parking lots in the city of Chicago, it's not going to help you if you don't have a car. So in conclusion, when consumers are heterogeneous, access justice has, by definition, differential impact. In important areas, the access justice helps least those who need help most. It's not always, this is not a, this is a possibility kind of result. It can happen. And the question that needs to be asked is when does it happen? I gave you examples when it happens. And any excess justice law must satisfy the burden of proving that it is not regressive. What can we do instead? I don't, we can, this is also something we can discuss, but we can use instead of excess justice kind of equal opportunity laws, we can use direct subsidies to the needy. Just this weekend I saw a program in Seattle of pricing bus and train tickets based on income. It's not equal access to, to everyone, free open buses to everyone, only to the, to the poor that get their little Ventra cards or whatever they are pre-screened for the discount based on their income. So I will end with this like a French intellectual, which I am not, uh, I, with a phrase in French. Uh, by Anatole France uh, that I think captures a lot of this idea. So the translation is that the law in its majestic equality forbids, forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, or to steal bread. Um, let's hear what you think. There's so much in your question. I think it's a fabulous question, and I think that, um, you know, let's first say, so let's discuss a few things here. Is this talk right or left? Is this Republican or Democrat? You have to ask yourself, do I agree with it or dis disagree? I need to know how to. Uh, <clears throat> um, I think it's neither. I think there's nothing normative here. This is a descriptive talk. This, it says that there are intended consequences, and they are not reached. They're not accomplished. 
It's just a prediction of what will happen. Now, you might say, good that it's not reached because, hey, we hate government programs in the first place, and when they fail, let's get rid of them all. Or we say, bad that it's not reached because we do want to help low-income people, and we have to figure out how to do that. So it can inform a normative discussion. But it is really unfortunate that a lot of the normative discussions on these programs is based on misguided principle, a misguided understanding of their effect. That's the first thing we need to correct, the data. This is kind of a data discussion. Now, it, if the, one of the lessons is that it is hard to accomplish equal opportunity laws to make them work, maybe we have to move on and do something else. First, we can maybe fix them. But there is such long track record of it's very hard to overcome these excess handicaps of the poor, why they don't come to the benefit that maybe what something else that they there are other ways to do it. So I gave the example of Seattle, but there's the more general statement would be, if you want to help people and do something redistributive, don't give it in kind, give it in money. I don't know that I subscribe to that. I think that there is value in society to securing things for people, not just their net wealth or, or, or income. I think that in, in making the, let's say, American with Disabilities Act, that requires accommodations for people with disability that are, could be incredibly expensive. It could cost $2 million to put in, you know, an elevator going down five stairs. Give the money to the one handicapped person on the fact, on the, in the building. They'll be much happier than this elevator. Do it with money. Well, I don't think so. I think that there is something that is being lost when the talks are at the basement and the handicapped person cannot go there. So we want to work on equal opportunity, uh, equal access laws, access justice laws. But, gee, we want to make sure that they are targeting the people that we wanted to, uh, to target. And finally, it is, you know, the, I think that my example of the congressional record in the storm, in the um, flood insurance laws, suggests that there is something here beyond partisan politics. Because all of Congress voted for the Bigger Waters Act to scale down the expensive, uh, expensive subsidies. And then two years later, all of Congress, left and right, voted to undo these, uh, that reform and to give back the subsidies. There are very few things in our politics nowadays that are not partisan, but this was one of them. And, uh, and so I think they, both sides are, are equally misguided in that sense. That's one of my, my, one of my, uh, my insights here, I think. Other questions? Yes. Yeah. Sure. I think that there is nothing wrong with social programs that subsidize the wealthy. First of all, why not? First of all, they're just part of a general portfolio of many, many, many programs. So many of them don't benefit the wealthy. Some do. Everybody should get something from the social pie. 
So may, am I just cherry-picking the few that are pro-elite pro and, and not focusing on the ocean of programs that are pro-weak, pro-poor? That, that could be one, one critique. Another critique could be it's very good to build free open marinas in Chicago on the lake. We know only people with boats, with yachts can use, right? So it's definitely, it's clearly benefiting the wealthy. But then the wealthy move to Chicago and they open factories and businesses and great jobs. So what's wrong with that? Everybody benefits. We need to lure the wealthy so that they create, they, they bring with them all their, I don't know, innovation and wealth and blah, blah, blah. So <clears throat> all of these things are, you know, I, I think that both points are conceptually correct. The only thing that I think I'm adding to this is it's, it's not an argument against programs for the wealthy, nor that these are necessarily always bad. It is that we have to recognize that those programs that we have checked to be pro-poor, pro-weak, are not really. So they should go in that category of, of, of public expenditures that is not helping the weak so that we can divert other tax money for these programs if we so decided. If, if, a, if, if, the, if a city decides to, because of pressure by constituents or because of the progressive bias of its mayor or what have you, to enact a program that is supposed to help the you know, more needy members of their community, but it does not, it needs to know that so that it would not count this one as a check on the you know, uh, helping the poor column. That, that's the point that uh, I think we are trying to create. So uh, obviously you can zoom out from my examples and see, come up with a lot of examples that don't work like that. Public schools in Chicago are financed mostly by tax-paying residents of Cook County, which are not poor people. And are, are the public schools are mostly, if not primarily, attended by poor people. So here you have a cross-subsidy. It's not a very happy story because we know that something only like 4% or so of public school students graduate from, end up graduating from college. So they're not really getting good education there. Um, um, but they are getting something that others don't. Um, and so uh, it's not regressive. It's just really a bad program all overall, but it's not regressive. Not all programs are regressive. The, the, the fact that the lakefront is by mandate, not private, but rather public, means that everybody can access it. Although my wife works with kids in the Englewood, store, uh, Englewood School, which is just a few blocks away from here, and some of them have never been to the lake. Why? Well, they, they, they know it's there, but they don't have any way to get there. It's four miles, three or four miles from the lake. No, they don't have cars, don't have the safety to get there. So again, you see these kind of, that you're not part of a network that enjoys access, you're going to be a, a handicapped in that sense. More questions? I think that, is it really the case that access just as long as necessarily helping the poor? I mean, when you talk about roads or, or even uh, public transport, education, I mean, a lot of this just seems to be helping maybe the middle class and not really the, the very poor, it's really just the, the middle group that you're trying to um, increase. So maybe you're just trying to like, think of as many people as you want mm -hmm. to, regardless.
think a lot of the, the quote quote might be rhetoric might be political talking. It's not clear if that's necessarily the focus of the program. Fair enough. I think that uh, it's probably true that a great, a great many social programs, important ones, benefit the middle class, not the poor. For example, social security. George Stigler wrote an article exactly on this issue about almost 50 years ago. He called it Director's Law of Public Income Distribution, distribution or something like this. Director was Aaron Director, which was an economics professor here at the law school, one of the founders of law and economics. And director said it, but never wrote it, so Stigler wrote a paper on it. Director said that, you know, public programs, public expenditures always benefit the middle class. And gave examples of expenditures, the tax uh, deduction for charitable contributions to religious organizations. Said these benefit largely the middle class. They had the data then. I don't know if it's still true today. And the same was true, he said, for example, about social security and the military. All, maybe it's, all of this is a little outdated, the data that was relied on. But that was the idea, and I think that there is a lot of uh, uh, truth in it. But I'm not just talking generally about public expenditures. I'm talking about public expenditures to support programs that provide openness, access. Not necessarily jobs, but this kind of idea that is, features less among, very, that features much in the way we justify laws in law school rather than the way it is justified in public policy schools. That we think about the, the rationale of the law as a, supported by a distributive ideal and, the, and we kind of brandish the fact that it will move towards the weak. Now it could be that it's just rhetoric, a rhetorical move but uh, I'm not sure that it, may, it is meant just as a rhetorical move. I don't, I think that, that the, I don't know what the lawmakers in the Flood Insurance Act really thought when they, one after another, marched and said, you know, look at these low-income people that are working hard and can't afford flood insurance. They probably uh, got phone calls from some of their donors or some of their more wealthy constituents that said, ah, that's crazy. You know, I'm going to have to pay $20,000 insurance on my mansion. Uh, but they also, you know, um, probably had a true conviction that this is uh, going to affect weaker populations and uh, invoked that as a, as a rationale. Think, for example, I have had this uh, debate with, ma with many people, including some colleagues and students. They tell me they hate Chicago's new traf uh, parking prices. Many of you haven't lived in Chicago long enough to remember that just a few years ago, parking in the street of Chicago would cost 75 cents or a dollar an hour everywhere. You know, long way from the $6 an hour in the loop, right, or $4 in the south loop in downtown, an hour. So this kind of feels like, you know, we're being ripped off. Now, granted, there is a complicated, Com compli some complication here, this is the money that goes to a private company that now owns the rights to charge, but supposedly it was amortized into the price that the company paid initially uh, to the city of Chicago. Is this, who gets hurt by that? Well, first of all, half of Chicago residents, the poorest half, don't have cars. So they are not hurt by that. 
Uh, and so it is only people that have cars in the first place that will have to pay more. And among those that have cars, it, there is going to be a regressive effect. Wealthier people can afford it. They are happy to now have open spots and, and uh, pay the prices, the higher prices, whereas true middle-income people are going to struggle with that. So this is not a program that benefits middle income. It's not a program that benefits lower income. It, it doesn't affect lower income. And it probably benefits the, the wealthy. So you can see why people resent, some people resent that. And this is the kind of analysis that I think needs to be done on every program, to think about consumers not as homogeneous group, but ask who is going to be benefiting based on who has more of the access to the program. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. I think that to say that a program is regressive can mean two things. It can mean something weak and something very strong. I think most of the exam my examples meant to say something more weak rather than the strong version, but some of them apply to the strong version. What is the weak version? The weak version has to do with the question, who, how are the benefits distributed? More, if they are distributed more to the wealthy, to the elite, I call this regressive in the weak sense. Regressive in the strong sense, much more troubling, is if not only are they enjoyed more by the wealthy, but they are paid more by the poor. So they overall increase, rather than reduce, the level of income inequality. For that to happen, we have to show that the poor are not only denied effective access, which we can see that happening in many contexts, but that they are paying. Well, we know that poor people don't pay taxes, not as much. So there must be some implicit way in which they, they are paying. They're paying in several ways. First of all, in the context in which the cost is rolled into market prices, everybody pays the same market price, for example, in insurance, um, then we can have a strong form of a, a regressive re redistribution. It is also troubling in the sense that if the government uses tax money, the budget, to fund the program, tax money not paid for by the poor, to fund the program that benefits the wealthy, this is money that cannot be used for other things. So the alternative use, the alternative user who is being denied 
the benefit of tax money because it was channeled to this program rather to another is the one who in effect is funding it. If we say let's not have programs of Head Start or subsidies to low-income daycare centers, but instead let's have another program that supposedly creates open access in the inner city but that is not accessed equally by a poor residents, then we have, I think, a strong form of, re, uh, uh, of regressive redistribution. Uh, my question is a little bit general. So I'm, I'm, I want to know what, how do you think that, how do you differentiate this work of law and economics being what you said with, with, with public policies and, and tariffs? I mean, like, we law economics is fun, but you say this is like we are doing policy making. So how, how do you truly differentiate law and economics and public policy? Uh, look, I think that this is not law and economics. This is public policy. I think that they, when we think about policies, forget about public policy. We think about laws. I think that we, are, we want to be troubled by any divergence between the goals and the reality of the law. And that once we figure out that there is a divergence, we want to reconsider uh, the law give you an example of what I mean. So there are all these laws, call them public policy, call them laws, from the area of disclosure that require hospital to post uh, health um, uh, report cards. Hospital report cards is a form of disclosure regime in which they report all sorts of aspects of the quality of care, including the safety of care. They have to list the different categories of treatments that they provide in the, in the hospital and the fatality rates in the, in, that they have incurred. The, there are several different states have different websites and different report cards, but they are basically on the row column you have a list of that, the, uh, the treatments, and on the columns you have different measures of equality. And you can see hospital after hospital, what do they get? and choose, supposedly, the hospitals with the higher rating. It's just like using ratings for restaurants or for other things. The idea was that this will help overcome problems of low quality of care, which is you know, an enormous social problem. Tens of thousands of people die annually, at the very least, because of poor care. What can we do about it? Well, medical malpractice, licensing, punishment. But we can also empower people to make better decisions by going to the safer places. It's just like people shopping for safer cars. They look at the safety ratings that the insurance industry provides for the cars and choose the safer cars, and all companies begin to compete over safety. The same idea was that this would help, would do for hospitals. What happens in effect? Well, what happens in effect has been studied pretty extensively by health economists and uh, it's hard to generalize it in, you know, in a few couple of bullet points. But the ov my overall reading of that empirical literature is that, in, by and large, it did not lead to an increase in quality. It's disappointing. That's on the overall level, not on the redistributive level. Partly because, if you think about it, partly because most people don't go to these websites. And if you try to go, type Google Illinois report cards, you know, hospital report cards and go to this, you'll see it's not the most user-friendly and easy-to-use uh, website. It's also probably the case that your health plan does not allow you to choose a hospital. 
So why would you use it in the first place? So there is a problem in the premise here. It's not like choosing a car. The other problem is, and this is, relates to the, pro the issue we discussed today, everybody can use this information and, and operate on, in accordance with this information. But not everybody does. And it turns out that I think a person who I consider the most uh, reliable health economist studying issues like this uh, showed in, a, in several papers that the effect is for hospitals to push away and reject the sickest, poorest people, especially uh, of minorities. You know, that was documented that minority sickest minorities are not brought in. Why? Because they will ruin your rating as a hospital. They'll die. And the wealthier, healthier, more educated are able to get better health outcomes. They choose, they are directed to that. They now know how to find the better hospitals. It's kind of like a game of musical chairs. There is the few places, spots, you know, beds, in the best hospitals. And we were, before we were shuffled among them randomly. Now it's less random. Now it's based on information. Those that can use the information get first crack at these better uh, uh, slots, and this is the result that was documented. Uh, so when we think about it, then I would say, as a law, the report card law is misguided. It should not have been thought of as a solution to the problem that it was conceived. And I can't say that, you know, okay, toss it out, for, eliminate it from, from the record. I don't think we can do these things. But we have to think about other forms of regulation that maybe require a little bit more creativity than just a website with ratings to try to address these issues. Adam. Yeah, what is it about these programs that is so deceiving, that is, makes them so beloved and so uncontentious, right? It is, you know, I guess this is part of my overall agenda as a scholar, is to unmask programs that have this characteristic, that they are widely used, widely believed to have value, but they really don't. In my book about undisclosure, I made the argument that all of disclosure laws, is unnecessary, doesn't do any good, does more harm than good, cannot be solved, we have too much of it, let's stop using disclosure as a regulatory, uh, but, and yet it is being used all the time. In that book, I try to answer the question and say, why? Why is disclosure the go-to solution to so many problems? Every time there's a scandal, there's a issue, a new issue that legislators need, at the end, the law that comes out is some kind of a disclosure law. Well, it turned out that those are very easy to agree on. One of the things I did in the disclosure book to try to document this claim is to look at disclosure laws that have passed 
and ask at what majorities. And it was striking when I, with research assistants, started going statute after statute. Zero or close to zero opposition. Even in the health care reform, Obamacare, one of the most partisan and contentious issues in the history of politics, there was an element in the act that had to do with disclosure, the sunlight law, where doctors have to disclose conflicts of interests. That passed, you know, with bipartisan support, zero opposition. So the, I think that these, some laws that represent a compromise have a great success rate. And these are usually laws that require some kind of strong rhetorical statement with fairly little practical effect. They don't require budgets, um, and they do not uh, undermine the you know, right the business. They do not kind of um, bring out business interests to block these laws. Now, how much does that explain the success of laws in the access justice area? I think to some, but not a lot. Um, I think there, there should, there should, we should look for a political explanation, although I'm not sure I know what it is. Business interests, many strong business interests, Google, uh, you know, even Google, definitely Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T tried to block the, the net neutrality rules, but they were unable to do so. The, um, I think that even in that context, I never heard any side argue that these rules, and bring data, that these rules that try to guarantee equal access will actually hurt low, middle income and lower middle income users at the expense of upper middle income heaviest users. I don't know if that's true. Maybe there is no such data. But they didn't try to bring this that re, that redistribution card. So I guess I'm kind of walking around Adam's question, and I'm not sure I know how to answer this, uh, uh, this puzzle. Why does something with such, with such common unintended consequence never get evaluated, at least, in this context? Do you have any suggestions? One more question, yeah. yeah I, I mean, relating to that point, if that's the case, maybe the law itself is not unintended. It's made intended by the actual provision, even though that's not the clear across the Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, yes, you're, absolutely, you're right that there are these cynical intentions. But I think that we are so obsessed in our political debate about, with the, um, the rent-seeking contest between capitalists and workers, between the wealthy and the poor, businesses and consumers, employers and employees. These are the sides that we are... We don't want to spend time thinking about the, con the implicit contest between different groups of consumers. 
when some consumers win a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit, I want to think not whether I as a consumer should, I, I'm not, I shouldn't be thinking that I, am, I as a consumer should be happy because the business side lost. I should be thinking that the business lost and they will raise prices. Now, am I happy to pay more for what we've just won in the litigation? Maybe the right to access to, or the right to have longer period of product return or a more mandatory warranty. Things that consumers try to win in litigation. I may like it because it fits my preference. I may not like it because I like to buy cheap. But we differ on that. Some people buy at TJ Maxx and Filene's basement and others walk across the street to Neiman Marcus. Right? So we don't have the same preferences and we are not going to enjoy the same victories in lawsuits. Uh, and so the true contest that I'm trying to suggest sometimes exists is not against the businesses, but amongst ourselves. And that in, in the mandated access, mandatory rules in general, it plays out. We all have to pay for some things that we, not all, we don't all enjoy, and those who are disproportionately accessing and enjoying them are going to be subsidized by the rest of us. I think that as a category of a strategy of consumer protection, it's a very risky strategy, especially when the, those who enjoy the benefits are, these are benefits that are selectively used and are, you need to have the kind of sophistication that good wine drinkers say, uh, appreciate. I read a lot of writings in the consumer protection circles about how laws common law courts and the Supreme Court should stop these fine print contracts that disclaim everything. And I cannot square this, you know, I cannot align this uh, recommendation that consumers are being kind of um, hit hard with, the, with bad behavior by firms. With consumers, I cannot align it with consumers' overall happiness with the products. Repeat purchase of the same you know, mobile device and software and so on. And other than to say that, to conclude, that some of the concerns raised by the writers are concerns that reflect their own idiosyncratic tastes for very nice contracts. But they do not reflect the general public's taste to have very nice products, and who cares about the contract? So these are the kind of issues that I think are explain why also these debates don't focus on the redistributive element. Okay, thank you very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.